I think I've shared about this guy before, but there's a guy named R.G. Letourneau that some of you are familiar with. You know all about his story, perhaps. And when you hear that name, then you immediately think of some things. Um, he's the founder of what was sort of a training institute in Texas that has become Letourneau University. It's a really uh, well-known, well-established university in Texas and has uh, you know, just done some wonderful things. But R.G. Letourneau has a, an amazing story. He's one of the more unlikely heroes. And I think I have a picture of him there. Yeah. He's really one of the more unlikely heroes um, and unlikely leaders of 20th century uh, industry. So he's, he's back a little ways. He had humble beginnings and a seventh grade education. But he taught himself engineering. There you go, college students. Just teach yourself engineering. He taught himself engineering, and he eventually built a manufacturing empire. And um, earth-moving equipment in particular had Letourneau's stamp all over it. Um, he, his, his machines were really credited by the Allied forces as helping them to win World War II. I mean, it's like, hey, you know, that's all. Uh, and they also were used really to construct the highway infrastructure of modern America. I mean, every highway, basically, that was carved out in the 20th century were, was making use of Letourneau's machines. Um, he, had, he held more than 300 patents by the end of his life. And he'd also become one of the leading spokesmen for what was known as the faith and work movement, this movement that, that sought to integrate faith and work in the marketplaces and workplaces of the world. Uh, interestingly, though, Letourneau is, is known really, maybe famously um, by many, for his decision that, uh, that has become publicized. I don't think he necessarily publicized this himself, but it became known that he had made the decision to live on 10% of his income and to give 90% of his income and the, the profits of his company away to the work of, of God. Thus sort of reversing the, the pattern, the biblical pattern of, of tithing, of giving 10% of your income to the work of God. He just flipped it on, its, on his head. But what's not as well known as I was looking at this story this week was that this decision was the result of a previous choice. This decision that came later in his life was the result of a previous choice that he had actually made when he was 30 years old and deep in debt. Um, the decision that he made actually to make God a, a partner in business, to become God's partner in, in business. read this interesting story about him this week of of Letourneau being challenged by his sister, who was a missionary, to get serious with God. R.G., you've got to get more serious with God. And, and, and Letourneau thought that this meant, well, okay, doing what my sister does. I, I better become a missionary or a pastor or a spiritual leader, an evangelist. And he, he went to a revival meeting at his church, and he, when the altars were open, he went forward and just... As he said, he just gave in. And I'll do whatever you want me to do, God. I'll go wherever you want me to go. 
And he thought he was headed for the mission field, and so he sought some guidance from his pastor. And his very wise pastor, in meeting with Letourneau and listening to his heart, uh, began to pray with him, and after praying together uh, with, with Letourneau for a while, his pastor looked at him and said, you know, this 30-year-old man, you know, Brother Letourneau, God needs businessmen as well as preachers and missionaries. And Letourneau responded, well, all right. If that's what God wants me to be, then I'll be God's businessman. I'll be God's in all that I do, in all the ways that I do it. And he took his partnership with God seriously, although he felt like God was getting what he referred to himself as a sorry specimen as a partner. Um, but when financial success came, he remembered that that partnership, that pledge, that commitment. And again, he gave away so much of his, his wealth. And uh, it, it wasn't just sort of a, a, a flash of generosity. I think that's what I want you to hear in his story. It wasn't just like, oh, I got millions of dollars now. I think I'm just going to be generous with it. It was, it was the progression of Laterno over a really a lifetime, and especially from that moment of decision in his life, of coming to a place of saying, who I am is yours, God. All I have, my gifts and talents and abilities, all I have is yours. And, and let me somehow partner with you in the work that you are doing. And his perspective became, became then just sort of a natural response. It wasn't anything flashy, it was just a natural response and, and can be summarized really nicely by one of his other quotes. The question is not how much of my money I give to God, but rather how much of God's money I keep for myself. <laughs> not a question of how much money I give to God, but how much of God's money I keep for myself. Laterno was somebody, and he's, you know, this story's been told lots and lots of times. He's been an amazing example. But he was somebody who had grasped by the grace of God a foundational understanding of the relationship between his faith in God and his financial reality. He had, he had settled this question early in his life, that these would not be two separate matters for him. It wouldn't be his life of faith over here in this nice compartment, and, and it wouldn't be this life of his financial business success or endeavors over here in this nice compartment, but they, these, would be, these would be vitally and deeply connected, intertwined really at every step of his career and his life, and each having a significant impact on the other. I think there's just this beautiful picture of this this interconnection, his faith in God, enabling him to see money for what it was, not a master, not a, an end in itself, but a tool to be used for the glory of God, and his financial reality on, at the same time becoming one means by which he was able to express his devotion to the kingdom of God and to make his contribution one, one way 
He was able to make his contribution to the plans and purposes of God. It's this interplay between faith and finance that, uh, that, t- that Paul has some really powerful things to say to his protege, Timothy, in our reading from 1 Timothy today, chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, just turn there with me. And uh, we're going to read, I'm going to read for us, chapter 6, verses 6 through 19. And uh, the writer of these words is not pulling any punches, not mincing any words, because he realizes that this conversation is one that must be had head on, that must must be dealt with. And, and, and perhaps realizing, as Jesus had in his ministry, that, that, that this issue is not one that, that goes well when swept under the rug, but is important for us to be able to talk about and to think about. Let's stand together. Let me read it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 19. The people... Oh, that's not right. Oh, there it is. I always check my Bible and then look there. So, I, my eyes said nine. My eyes said six, but it was nine. So I'm going back to six. Yet true godliness, there it is, with contentment, is itself great wealth. Mm. Just stop there for a moment before we say anything more about material wealth and finances and money and the relationship. Just stop and think about the abundance, the fullness that we experience in contentment and in godliness. After all, verse 7, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. You can't take it with you. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. But you, Timothy, are a man of God So run from all these things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God, who gives life to all, and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey this command without wavering, then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He alone can never die, and He lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach Him No human eye has ever seen, nor ever will, all honor uh, and power to Him forever. Amen. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud 
and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So, you noticed it, but just to be clear, this passage is about so much more. You can take that down there, and there you go. This passage is about so much more than money. It's a passage, did you hear it? It's a passage that speaks about the source of true contentment. If you, have, if you were looking at your Bible, I invite you just to keep it open before you there. It speaks about the pursuit of a holy and a godly life speaks about the authority of Jesus Christ. I mean, Paul kind of takes off on a little, seems a little bit like a tangent, but it's all related, but just into this, this hymn of praise and glory to God the Father and to Jesus the Son. It's a passage of Scripture ultimately about putting our complete trust in, in God. But all of this important teaching comes here within this context, sort of held within this, this basket, if you will, this context of what was clearly a pressing issue for early believers, and one that has only grown in significance for, for contemporary Christians, and especially contemporary American Christians, and particularly contemporary American Californian Christians, <laughs> and, and, and those of us who... who on whatever global scale you'd look at, find ourselves to be in the, in the top percentile of, of, of wealth in the world. And this passage, just as we talked about with Laterno, refuses, it refuses to allow believers, followers of Jesus, to compartmentalize their faith and their finances into these two separate categories as we are so prone to do. Sometimes it's maybe just a guilty conscience. We just like, we just have so much, we just have to kind of, we just put it over there. And we have our faith over here, and we just want to keep it separate because we just don't want it to get messy. Or maybe it's because we feel like we don't have enough, and we just, we, we, we just always thinking about that, and we, if we're negative, then it starts to get into our, our faith, and we just get depressed about it. So we just, we just separate, and never the two shall meet. But instead, this passage, it invites us this morning to carefully reflect and to to, to think critically about the relationship between our faith and our finances and then to make very intentional choices, to to, to be very deliberate about our decisions that we make with our money that, that will in turn demonstrate our desire to honor God with all that we all that we have. I remember a long time ago, before I was a parent, I was with my parents in a restaurant, and uh, and there was a there was a uh, a parent with a child who was just like having a hard time at the at the breakfast table. It was a little. I don't even remember how old it, this child was, but it was young enough that it was not happy, and it was letting the whole restaurant know that it was not having a good time. Something was wrong, and, 
And I remember just like trying to eat my pancakes. And uh, if you haven't heard, I like pancakes. Um, um, I remember trying to eat my, my pancakes and thinking, you know, as my brother, I've heard my brother-in-law say before, who brought their kids? You know, usually he says that when he's thinking about his own kids. But, um, yeah, who brought this baby in here? You know, can't you do something about it? In my head, I'm thinking this as a young, probably college age, maybe in high school person. And, and I kind of look over and I see the dad starting to kind of scold the, the little child. It, it wasn't a baby. It was old enough to sort of know, but not really. And scold, getting after them and like telling them to be quiet. We've got to eat our pancakes and you're bothering everybody. And, and I remember my dad just kind of under his breath. He didn't say it out loud to the guy. Maybe he should have, but just kind of under his breath, but loud enough for me to hear. He said, that's not the way. That's not the way to do it. Just, just get up and take her for a walk. You know, take, take your little baby for a stroll. Change the, change the scenery. And, and as, I, as I got married to someone who had studied child development, and as I had my own children in my, my life, I learned the word for this. And the word is, is redirection. Just you're going, they're going one direction, and we're all going with them. Well, let's redirect a little bit here. What do, you, what do you say? And I think what Paul wants to do with Timothy, and through Timothy to the church that he pastored, and through this letter to that church to us who would read it, is he wants to redirect us. We're, we're going, if, allowed, if left to our own devices, and left to the to the temptations and the power of mammon, of money in the world, which I don't necessarily believe is just a neutral force. I believe that there are some, some spiritual forces at play in, in alluring and, and luring people into problems. If we're left to our own devices, we'll have a problem every time. So if we're moving that way, what I think Paul wants to do is redirect us and move us in a new direction. And perhaps today, as you read this, you felt bad. Maybe you felt scolded. I, I did a little bit, even as I read it. Like, ouch, that one hurts. But I don't think that Paul is trying to get mad at us here. He's just trying to take us for a stroll. He's trying to get us to think about our faith and our finances in a, in a new and more beautiful and more powerful way. Yes, there are the warnings. It comes through clear. There are those, he says, who have wandered from the faith. Money is, is a root of all kinds of evil, he, he tells us. And, and we have seen and perhaps been those kinds of people who have fallen victim to, to these temptations. But I think also that Paul is wanting to move us not just, not just away from the potential pitfalls, but into the potential beauty of how it is that we might live a, a, a faith that's powerful and genuine, and to live a life that is, that is one of stewardship and responsibility with the finances we've been, we've been given. We've got to get this right. I just, that's the other thing that as I read this this week, I just thought, man, this really is, this really is foundational. If, if American... Californian Christians can't get this right, then not only are we in trouble, but really the world is in trouble. 
and the church is potentially in trouble. We gotta, we gotta get this right. And I'm not gonna claim to tell you everything you need to know this morning to get it right, but I'm hopeful that this interaction can get us moving in a way that will help us to continue to learn and to continue to bring this matter before the Lord for for the Holy Spirit's conviction and guidance and leadership so that we can become more and more aligned with what God's true heart is uh, for us and for this, this life. Jesus said it himself in Matthew chapter 6 that no one can serve two masters. You remember that? No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. He said, he said sooner or later you're going to start loving one a little bit more and despising the other a little bit more. And yet, this is just, so I was thinking about my own life, this is kind of what we do. We, we try to navigate that middle ground. We, we declare our allegiance and our commitment to Christ, but, but by the way we live, we also display that we're sort of under the, at least at some level, the powers of consumption and acquisition and all these things that have so subtly and yet just clearly become aware of, of our society. And, and Jesus just wants us to know, and Paul further in this passage, that, that uh, we can only dance this dance with two partners for so long. And as much as... Um, as much as that's a warning... It's also a, a redirection to something beautiful and something good. So one thing I want you to notice right from the start of this passage, really, and the overall message of the scripture, something that I want to be really clear about this morning is, uh, is that while the followers of Jesus, and not only here, but, but in all days, are indeed to be very, very careful with the accumulation of wealth, and by that I mean a whole lot. How did we get it? You know, what was the process for accumulating that wealth? What people had to be stepped on? What, what relationships had to be squandered? I mean, not to say that it had to, but, but we need to be very, very careful with the accumulation of wealth. How we got And then we need to be very, very careful with, with what that accumulation of wealth might possibly do to us in the process of it and do to us in the, in the experience of it. We need to be very, very careful with the accumulation of wealth. I think that Paul makes pretty clear here that wealth in itself is neither condemned uh, as inconsistent, is never condemned as inconsistent with or contrary to the life of Christian faithfulness. So hear that again. While we need to be very, very careful about the accumulation of wealth, wealth in itself is never condemned as contrary to a life of Christian faithfulness. Right here, if you look down at verse 17 in particular, Paul's instruction to those who are rich in this world. There, there are some wealthy people who are reading this letter. There are some within the body of Christ who are, who are rich in this world. And what is of crucial importance for Paul here is the attitude of that person the person who has attained wealth. And what is important is their complete submission to God's will for that wealth. What's of concern is that they not be tripped up by this wealth, but that they stand at the ready, that we stand at the ready 
to be generous while and when there's need. Again, there's warnings throughout Scripture, including this passage about the perils and the pitfalls. I don't, I don't think I need to rehearse too many of those this morning for us. We've, we've been there. We've seen that. Um, wealth isn't, as Paul makes clear here, a, a, a good uh, gauge of ultimate meaning. It, it's, not a, it's not a resource for, to rely on for ultimate significance in this world. There's warnings throughout Scripture. There's also been in the church this, this reality and this recognition um, of Jesus' preferential option for the poor. And, and the church, and in particular the church of the Nazarene, the tradition that we're, we're a part of, has always sought to express this solidarity with and preferential option for, for the poor. Showing love and compassion and caring especially for all of those who are sort of quote unquote at the, at the bottom of society, the poor and the sick and the outcast. There are numerous examples uh, of followers of Jesus who make use of their financial wealth to advance the plans and purposes of God in, in these kinds of settings. But we can also know that in Scripture, there, there's another, there's another storyline as well. There's, there's not only this, this storyline of the perils and pitfalls of wealth, but there's this storyline of, of those Throughout Scripture in particular, I want to reference some in the New Testament who have used the resources that God has made available to them for the blessing and the benefit of the kingdom. Just remember some of these. Joseph of Arimathea. Remember Joseph? And, and, and several, in at least three of the Gospels mention, mention Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mention as the, sort of the wealthy religious leader who was not uh, in agreement with Jesus's crucifixion, and when Jesus was, was declared dead, went to get and asked for and get Jesus' body and brought Him to a tomb that Joseph had prepaid for himself. I know that's kind of an interesting practice more and more these days as well, but, but evidently it happened back then as well. Prepaid for his own tomb, and now though he was willing to allow Jesus to make use of that of that space. I remembered, of course, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, however you want to say his name, this, this tax collector, this small of stature tax collector, and we remember the story, we could sing the song, but the, but the amazing reality of this one who was paid a visit by Jesus, and who, who, who heard a convicting word from Jesus, and at the end of that encounter with Jesus at a mealtime in his own home declared, I'm giving half of everything I have to those who are in need. And anyone who I've, who I've done wrong, I'll pay them back fourfold. I remember um, Barnabas in the book of Acts, the encourager. If you, haven't, if you don't know a whole lot about Barnabas, you might look to the book of Acts, chapter 4 and beyond. He's He's said to have sold, I think this is, I think this is interesting, he's sold, said to have sold a field that he owned. Maybe not all of his fields, but a field that he owned to support the, the body of, of Christ in that place. But we know from the follow-up story with Ananias and Sapphira that, that if it was only a field, then 
it was clear that all of his fields had been made available. Ananias and Sapphira were those who kept back from what they had and experienced an untimely end. I'm also thinking of this gal named Lydia in the book of Acts. Lydia was this amazing woman who, all we were really told about her is that she was a merchant. She was a dealer in purple cloth, and, uh, or in cloth, and we think it was purple, I think maybe from her name and the situation and the circumstances, but she was this, she was this wealthy businesswoman who became the co-church planter with the Apostle Paul in the, the first church planters in the continent of Europe. She's the one who met Paul and said, hey, you want to use my house for this gathering? I think it would be a great thing to do. This early Christian businesswoman who hosted the first Christian church on European soil. The truth is that there's just two storylines. And the, the early church... Um, found places for both the wealthy and the poor and everybody in between to, to, f- to serve God and to make a meaningful contribution. Not everybody who followed Jesus and not everybody who follows Jesus became wealthy and will become wealthy. I, just, I was reading some things this week. Even when we write and think about wealth as a blessing of God, I sort of kind of cringe at that, to be honest. Because I just... It is in some, at some level, but God blesses us all in different ways. And to somehow think of that as a more significant blessing just doesn't make sense. Not everybody who follows Jesus is wealthy. Not everybody who follows Jesus should be wealthy. Not everybody who follows Jesus might know what to do with that wealth. Wealth isn't somehow an indicator of his special blessing. But listen, Scripture bears this out. Paul's words in this passage bear this out. There are going to be some who are particularly gifted with skills for making money. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I've never preached a sermon like this before, but I just, there is going to be some people, I've met them, that love God and have a knack for making money. Whether that be through, because of their business acumen or savvy, whether that just be because they're just unnaturally uh, persistent and they persevere. Maybe, maybe they just had the right creativity that was poured into them at just the right time to solve just the right problem. Whatever it might be, there are just some folks that within the church that this is true of. It's people like this and the resources that they back then brought with them Joseph and Zacchaeus and Barnabas and and Lydia who were instrumental to the growth of the Christian movement and still today we got to realize and Paul wants us to realize that still today there are ministries in the church, services in the world that depend on the generosity and faithfulness of those who are able and willing to share. John Wesley, one of our theological forefathers in his sermon on money, that was the name of the sermon, on money, instructed faithful followers of Jesus with these famous words now, make all you can 
Save all you can. Give all you can. It's like this, repeat, repeat, repeat. Make all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. Well, how much? All you can. Well, how about the saving? All you can. How about the get? All you can. I remember coming home. I was at a, actually, I was at a conference a few years ago on, on the relationship between faith and science. And if you're not sort of aware of that relationship or conversation, it is, in some circles at least, almost as tumultuous or hostile as the relationship between faith and money. And, and faith and science, all the questions of evolution in particular, but all these other sort of um, issues, creation, science, and everything is just kind of made for a, a, a kind of, in some circles, just a real, a real separation between faith and, and science. And I was at this conference where I was hearing from faithful Christian theologians and faithful Christian philosophers and faithful Christian scientists. And they were all sort of not in complete agreement by any, and, you know, any means, but they were all saying one general message that the study of science is the study of God and His creation. And, and, and what we need to do whatever we can to begin to bridge the gap that has arisen between faith and, and science. And I remember that because my kids were probably, I don't know, 15 and 13 at the time, and, and I had never really encouraged them to be scientists before, to enter into a scientific career. Um, but I remember I got on the phone, actually, where I was at the conference, and called them and said, hey, uh, how you doing? You know, everything okay? Yeah, Dad, what's the matter? Nothing. But if you want to be a scientist, you can. Just, if you've ever heard in the church that science is bad, if you've ever heard any kind of, picked up any sort of message from me that we're nervous about scientific discovery or somehow that, that, uh, that it's just, you know, it's all here in the Bible and we don't need to read any of those textbooks or doing that. Yeah, just, if you've ever heard anything like that, just please forget it and know that, yes, I love God deeply and I believe what the Word says about who He is, but there's just great room for scientific exploration and discovery, delving into all that God has made and all that God has created. And if you want to be a scientist, please, in fact, be a scientist. I was like just going overboard, just, you know, trying to offset anything negative that I had ever said. Just go be a, just be a scientist. I, I remember that story this week as I was thinking about this passage. Because how many times have we communicated either by our words or by the way that we act that making money is a bad thing in, in the Christian movement? Maybe you've never heard that. Maybe you've never suggested that. But it just... It seems, I mean, it's a little bit like Laterno with his sister. you got to get serious with God, R.G., and the first thing he thought of, well, I better be a missionary then. It's just sort of in the, in the air in the Christian church that to be serious with God means to set aside those kinds of things and to give our life completely to these other kinds of things. And, and what I think Paul wants us to know is that, is that it's not one 
It doesn't have to be one or the other. There's an invitation. If this is how God has gifted us, I mean, Paul writes about it in, in Romans 13. He says, if, if you have the gift of giving, because unwritten, you have a lot of stuff to give, then give generously, Paul says. Throughout his writings, throughout Scripture, there's this idea that we just need to, to keep coming back to, that this, is, that this is one way in which God is equipping people. And so I, I just want, this is really weird, like, and, I, and I hope you know like, the balance to it, but I just want to tell you, especially like college students here and younger people, but older people, I don't care where you are in your career, if, you can, if God is giving you a way to make more money in a responsible and healthy and um, way that honors Him and doesn't kind of devalue people and all these kinds of things that we want to be very, very careful about. And if we can do so protected by and, and consumed by a love for God and a pursuit of who He is and what He longs for from us and, and in us, then, then seriously, make that money. Show me the money, as, as Cuba Gooding said to Jerry Maguire. Show me, I mean, it is, it is a beautiful and powerful moment. And, and if you're called to be a missionary and make no money at all, then go show me the missions. You know, go and be that. And if you're called to live a very, we were talking about this in our church board meeting, just kind of describing sort of our, the state of reality in Santa Barbara, especially. And it's like people, you know, a lot, the majority of people seem to just be like this survivor culture. We're just, we're just surviving and we're fighting every day to just make it. And we're like, Pretty soon somebody's going to vote me off this island, I'm pretty sure, but I'm just going to keep going for it as much as I can. And, and maybe we're in that place, but, but if, there's, if there's a place, I, and, and just to know that I'm not telling you to make all you can and save all you can so that people can look at you and say, look how much she has, look how much she saves and he gives. No, but so that we might be able to to not put our reliance on that, but to put our faith in the God who can then use that and use us in beautiful and powerful ways. And man, I just, even as I'm saying that, I'm like, I just want to make sure that this, isn't, this doesn't have any like self-interest in mind either. It's not like, go make a lot of money so you can tie it to the local church. It's like, just go so you can, and, and, and see what God opens up to you. I, I just want to, Air on that other side today. So if there's a young person or a... Again, I'm not telling you to be greedy or to just pursue wealth and wealth alone. You will never find any contentment there. Those of us who could testify to that have found it to be wanting. But, to, but to, if God has gifted you in such a way and to move forward in, in that, that way, how can you do it? How can you do it well? Well, just a couple of quick things. Just... Just maintain a real spirit of gratitude. And again, we're all in that top percentage. So whether or not we're pursuing wealth according to this standard or we're already experiencing wealth according to the world's standard, um, cultivate a great spirit of gratitude. Just, just grow that within you. Develop a thankful heart to God for the way that He leads 
the remedy to pride and greed is gratitude. It comes in recognizing, as Letourneau says, I quote at the beginning, it's not how much I can give of my money to God, but how much of God's money I can, I can use. Um, recognizing it all comes from God, and, and He's gracious in providing for us. We're grateful. Boy, be grateful every day, whether you make a lot of money or just a little bit of money. Make sure you're grateful every day for the skills, for the abilities, for the perseverance, for the insight for the savvy, for the creativity that has all come from God. Determine, not only this grateful heart, but, but determine to keep Jesus at the center. Just, just make that at the heart. Um, St. Augustine once said in my translation, love God and do what you will. And basically what he was saying in that is that if, if our hearts are centered on God, if He is our only focus and if we are as Paul writes in here pursuing righteousness and a godly life and faith and love and perseverance and gentleness if we are fighting the good fight of faith if we are on guard if we are keeping Jesus at the center then then we can anticipate that the spirit will guide us as we move out into the activity in our activity in the world whether that be in in financial situations, relational situations, uh, service, community situations, we can, we can trust. So, so develop and cultivate that, that kingdom priority. You can, you can earn money and not be controlled by it. You, if, if the opposite is true too, and think Switchfoot has a line in one of their songs that says, possess your possessions or they'll possess you. And so we, we get a hold of these things. We, we, we have a sense of control over them and not allowing our possessions or our wealth to have a control over us. Um, kingdom priorities. And then, then just that last thing, and again, it's not self-interest, but... Um, Paul says it there at, at the end, really. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. You hear the words? Do good. Generosity. Ready. Share with others. And he says, and he borrows some words, it sounds like, from Jesus when he says, doing this, they'll be storing up their treasure where Jesus said that, store up treasure in heaven. Storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. When we, when we devote the wealth that we have, whether that's a lot or a little, to the good, when we're generous, when, we are, when we're ready and willing, when we live with sort of this, and if you've never seen or thought about this image, when we live with hands that are open, with the resources we've been given as opposed to living with sort of a clenched fist, grasp around what we have, then, then our lives are just, they're drastically, dramatically different both for the here and for eternity. We're, we're laying treasures in heaven that are allowing us to have a foundation that we can build upon even here. Be careful about collecting. Be careful about pursuing selfish interests invest in, in others. And I've shared this story from time to time, but it always just come, comes back to me. 
Um, and I honestly don't remember the last time I shared it. It might have been like a month ago because it's so prevalent in my life. But um, when I was in seminary and uh, I was, last week I told you about one of my jobs, baking bagels, right? Um, one of my other jobs was driving a school bus. I think I mentioned that. I had developed quite the resume in seminary other than taking classes. Um, not, a lot of, not a lot of wealth uh, coming into the, the bank accounts in, in that time of my life, for sure. And uh, one summer in particular, I, I uh, ruptured my spleen and uh, had to have surgery. They repaired it. It's still there. Thanks for asking. And uh, I can still filter my blood, I guess. Um, but... Uh, I was out of work for like six weeks. I couldn't drive the school bus. I couldn't drive. I couldn't, I couldn't do a lot of things, you know. And I remember the, the seminary community that was just, you know, made up of people like me and the, the business administrator who, you know, let's be honest, he didn't have a whole lot to do. There wasn't a lot of money floating around that place. But he came up to me one day in the hallway and just came up alongside me and said, hey, James, I know that you're, you're you know, not able to work I just want you to know that we have at the seminary here what's known as the Barnabas Fund. And uh, if you need a little bit of help, just, just let me know. And I honestly don't remember if I asked or received any money from the Barnabas Fund because it wasn't long after that when another one of my friends just came up to me who actually I didn't really know that well. And he gave me a check and he said, hey, you know, my wife's got a good job. I know you're hurting. Here's... It's just a hundred bucks. Don't worry about it. And it just like floored me. And I was so sort of humbled by that. Like I actually, actually needed it. I mean, I probably could have got a hundred bucks from my parents or somebody, but I wasn't going to really ask for that. And, and I was really humbled by that. But I was really like um, just uh, amazed by that too. That not only would that be a help to me, but what an extreme demonstration of kindness on his part. And what's funny is that I still, you know, 24 years later, I'm telling that story. Do you think that guy made, stored up some treasure that day? Not only in allowing me to buy some groceries, but in, in changing the way that I sort of see the world. And, and maybe changing the way that he sort of approaches it as well. And I, and I just think that that one little story is an expression or example of the, the possibilities that we can't even imagine coming to fruition when we live with open hands and with generous hearts. It, generosity sets into motion, I think what I'm saying. It sets into motion. And I'm looking at some of the most generous people in the world. Again, I'm just, you know, I'm not kidding. You guys are amazing. And I'm looking at you and I'm thinking of the way, seriously, some of the ways in which you have given in, in, in ways that you could have never imagined what would have come of that. And we've seen things happen because of that down the road. And things are still happening that, that maybe would not have had we not lived with that open, open hand. Well, don't, don't feel scolded by the Apostle Paul this morning. Don't feel him looking at you and saying, you, you selfish, you know, just, 
uh, you're this far away from wandering from the faith. You know, I mean, if it's true, then I guess hear it. But, but what I think, what I want us to hear is a redirection. Listen, this whole thing has a chance to get turned in such a way that it can be such a blessing and a benefit to the glory of God in the world, the one who is living and eternal and worthy of all our praise. Let's give it all to Him. Let's stand together, can we? Lord, thank You so much. I'm going to invite our worship team to come on up. We're so grateful for the way that You reveal Yourself to us in beautiful and kind ways and the ways that You keep calling us to offer more and more of who we are and all that You've given to us for Your use and for Your blessing and for Your glory and for Your honor. Set into motion something in us today that we didn't even know was there. Redirect us in ways that we didn't even necessarily know we were going in the wrong direction. Redirect us and bring us to life. Bring us to meaning. Bring us to deeper faith, deeper trust, deeper hope and confidence in You. A a greater focus, a greater clarity, a greater pursuit of You and all that You would have us to be. Equip and empower those who are gifted for giving and, and for earning, to earn well and to give generously and to to see just what it is that you do in us as we respond in obedience to your word today. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.